Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. It's Wednesday, May 18th, and my goodness, are things happening in the world of agriculture. On today's show in segment two, we're going to be talking with Scott Richmond. He's the chief economist at the Renewable Fuels Association. He just wrote a paper looking at the profitability that crude oil companies are looking at here in 2022 and how that compares and contrasts with ethanol. So stick around. We'll talk to Scott in segment two. And then in segment three, folks, what the wheat market giveth, the wheat market can take it. We're seeing wheat down big today in segment three. Arlen Suderman of Stonex will be joining us. We'll talk through some of these changes happening globally in the markets that impact our bottom line here in farm country. And then in segment four, Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council, will be on. Potatoes have had some really good news in the international trade front. Cam's going to celebrate that a little bit and look out to the future at the end of the show. Before we talk about all of that, though, folks, there is one topic that has been in the news heavily over the past two weeks, and that's cryptocurrency. We've seen that market have its ups and downs over the past two years. It has certainly changed the way the money flows through the world of commodities and and truly the broader financial system. And the areas of oversight for cryptocurrency come from interesting places. One area of oversight is the ag committees on both the Senate and the House side. And joining me today, ranking Republican member of the House Ag Committee, Congressman Glenn G.T. Thompson joins the show today. G.T., thanks for being with us. Hey, Mike. So glad to be with you this, uh, today. And uh, and sounds like you have a great, great program uh, scheduled ahead here. And I'm just proud to be with you first thing. Well, we're certainly excited to talk. It's interesting, Glenn, as we think about cryptocurrency falling under the same purview of agriculture, but that's exactly how it works. And I know you've recently released the discussion text of a bill. Can you talk about what the House Ag Committee might be working on here in the cryptocurrency space? Sure. Well, we, um, you know, um, cryptocurrency, these tokens, once issued, are a commodity, and uh, and commodities are regulated by the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation, CFTC, and that is the jurisdiction, as you noted, uh, under the Agriculture Committee on both the House and the Senate side. Uh, you know, that all uh, had its start when uh, CFTC was actually not a separate agency, but was a part of USDA, and the commodities we traded were, you know, were strictly uh, agriculture commodities, corn, soybeans, and, uh, and the like. And, uh, you know, those, those futures in contracts, and then, uh, then once some other commodities were added, uh, energy, gold, that type of thing, that uh, the CFTC was uh, taken out of the USDA and created as a separate agency, but the oversight remained with agriculture. So, we did uh, introduce a bill. Actually, the bill is going beyond discussion draft, I'm proud to report, uh, just recently. The Digital Commodity Exchange Act, or H.R. 7614, uh, was, uh, we actually introduced that on April 28th in a bipartisan way. Uh, Ro Khanna, a Democrat from California, Tom Emmer, a Republican colleague from Minnesota, and Darren Soto, a, uh, a uh, Agriculture Committee member from, uh, from Florida, a Democrat, um, and uh, we, as you noted, we, you know, we have jurisdiction over the commodity markets and the uh, House Agriculture Committee is really uniquely positioned to play a significant role in digital asset markets in the United States. And so this, this uh, bill was put together over um, a significant period of time. We had a, in the last Congress, under the uh, 16th Congress, we actually had a, a version um, and uh, we reintroduced uh, this time and uh, uh, yeah, you know, and really based on on principles uh, with what we're doing. I always, in my work on the Agriculture Committee, I like to define our principles ahead of time with whatever we're handling, whether it's di- uh, cryptocurrency, digital commodities, or cattle markets, or crop insurance, whatever it might be. Define our principles ahead of time, and then kind of use that as a um, true north needle and a compass to to guide us. And that makes a lot of sense. And in the cryptocurrency space in particular, over the last two years from when DCEA was first introduced in 2020 till now, it, that that space has kind of opted uh, operated as a wild, wild west area. What sort of, of regulatory oversight would you like to see move in to cryptocurrencies? 
Well, um, you know, the, the, the principles of which we based the text on, uh, really, were, there, were, um, there were five of them. Uh, number one, uh, whatever we do should support innovation, uh, because that is, this is the Internet 3.0, and America has always uh, uh, been in the driver's seat for the first two versions of the, the virtual highway, uh, the Internet. And this, this really, uh, you know, we, we started out with the Internet of Information and the Internet of Things, and, and 3.0 is the Internet of Value, and that's where cryptocurrency comes in. And so supports innovation. Uh, number two, though, is to protect market participants. Do no harm. Uh, and then uh, the third uh, principle is to uh, reduce complexity. Uh, number four is to promote principle-based regulation, and that's really what the CFTC does, and they're really good at it. Uh, and number five is, you know, we shouldn't uh, compete with existing pri uh, um, priorities or um, entities. You know, this should complement existing um, existing entities, what they do. So, you know, at its core, the DCA really simplifies the process by which digital commodities are brought to the market by creating clear jurisdictional lines between the CFTC and the SEC, and there's a lot of confusion on that right now, and establishing a more collaborative, flexible process to determine whether digital commodities should be made available for trading. It's interesting to see these cryptocurrencies, the digital commodities, as you refer to it, becoming part and parcel of our mainstream financial sort of overall picture. Congressman GT, what's your timeline? Do you think we're going to get a vote on this bill here prior to the November elections? Well, we're, I'm really pleased uh, that with all the steps that we've taken. You know, we've, we've had We've been open since November for a discussion draft, as, as you noted, Mike, and we just recently closed that out in April because we wanted all the key stakeholders, anyone who's interested, to give input into the draft discussion that I had released. Uh, we've cleared that hurdle. We've introduced, we finalized the bill. We've introduced it, uh, and now we're building co-sponsors. That's the that's the phase that we're in right now. I would hope uh, we will uh, yeah, get this to the point. Um, uh, I, I would hope, I don't know uh, if we can do this by, um, you know, during the summer, but it would be great to have this bill, uh, you know, do a hearing on it in the Agriculture Committee, uh, followed at some point then by a markup so that we can we could get this to uh, uh, try to get this to the House floor for consideration. Congressman GT, before we let you go, House Ag Committee schedule coming up. Are there any hearings or, or listening sessions you're excited about? Well, we've uh, we have picked up the the uh, uh, the tempo just a bit. I'm I'm still disappointed at uh, at where we are. You know, in the 2018 Farm Bill, uh, by this point in that process, we would have had a hundred listening uh, uh, listening sessions or uh, um, field hearings or or or. Uh, official hearings here in Washington, and I don't think we've broken 10 yet, unfortunately. Um, and so we've we've got a long ways to go. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. 2018 Farm Bill was really successful because of how we brought people to the table. Uh, we are moving that direction, and so uh, uh, we we've got a lot of work to do when it comes to uh, preparing for the 2023 Farm Bill. It'll be here before we know it. We'll check back in with Congressman Glenn Thompson from the 15th District of Pennsylvania as that moves forward. Congressman, thanks for joining us today. Mike, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And folks, stick with us. Scott Richmond, Chief Economist of RFA, will join us in just a moment. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more.
Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, if you've been listening to the show here over the past couple of weeks, I've been making a note as we hit milestones in the national average fuel prices when we hit a record. And folks, we have been hitting record after record. And today, it's another one. May 18th, 2022, the highest recorded national average price for the for, uh, for regular unleaded fuel, currently standing at $4.56.5. Highest average price ever recorded for diesel today. Currently, diesel price on average $5.57 and a half cents. The question, I think, as we're watching these fuel pumps suck our dollars out of our checking and savings accounts is, where is this money going? And increasingly, we're getting some ideas as to where that money might be headed. Joining me today is Scott Richmond. He is the chief economist at the Renewable Fuels Association. He recently wrote a paper looking at the profit margins for these large oil companies. Scott joins us this morning. Scott, thanks for being here today. Well, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about refiner profit margins. This is the crude oil sector. Scott, what have we seen in recent months as oil prices at the retail side have exploded higher? Right. So like, like you mentioned, uh, you know, you did a good job uh, laying out the situation. We're all feeling the impact of record high gasoline prices uh, at the pump. Uh, I know I, you know, I went and filled up this last weekend, spent over $60. Uh, you know, it wasn't even for a uh, for a full tank, and so we're you know we're all feeling that we see that you know every day, every week. What people don't see when they go to the to the gas station is that not only are gasoline and diesel prices at record levels, but refiners are actually enjoying record profit margins, fifty dollars a barrel or even more uh, on the uh, on the refined fuels that they, that they produce, and. Amazingly, what's going on right now is that refiners are trying to deflect attention from the role that their own margins play in these uh, in these high retail prices, and they're trying to attack and kind of cast aspersions on the renewable fuel standard. Um, that's really ridiculous for, for two reasons. First of all, 
Ethanol right now is at least a dollar cheaper uh, than gasoline at the wholesale level. Uh, and secondly, without getting into too many technical uh, reasons, uh, refiners actually recover the cost, their cost of RFS compliance uh, through the, uh, the prices of the gasoline that they sell. And that's offset later in the supply chain when ethanol is blended into gasoline. But the important thing to, rem to remember is refiners really are not uh, incurring the cost uh, of, uh, of, of RENs, of RFS compliance, uh, and they're making record profit margins. So, you know, what we wanted to do is just set the record straight about what's going on right now. Refiners are making record profits at a time when people are having to pay more than ever uh, at the gas pump, uh, and the RFS really is not causing this. Well, and I think that's my question. If if I'm an oil refiner and I object to the RFS and we're we're trying to push back on it right now as they are, what are their reasoning? If the ref, if the RINs cost aren't taking away from their bottom line and their margins are huge, Scott, why are they picking on the RFS? Uh, I think it's a case of never waste a good op a, a good crisis. Uh, this is an opportunity for them to step in. People, a lot of people, you know, aren't. They're going about their daily lives. They're not paying attention to what's going on, and you know, in multiple markets related to related to fuels, they're not, uh, you know, they're not intricately familiar with the RFS, and they really don't understand how uh, how RFS credits, RINs, uh, work. And it's just, uh, you know, refiners are taking advantage uh, of a bit of a lack of uh, of full information uh, that consumers have, and they are trying to. Uh, again, they're trying to divert attention uh, at a time when the 2020 through 2022 um, RFS uh, volume requirements are just about to be published by the EPA, and they're trying to take advantage of the situation and you know try to put some of the blame on the RFS, which again, completely unfounded, but uh, they're playing from their old playbook. And Scott, unfortunately, it sounds like it's working. There was a report out on Monday from Reuters that the White House might be taking a look at the blending requirements under the RFS. Is that something you're hearing serious talk about in D.C.? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know how, you know, how serious those considerations are uh, actually at the, you know, at, at the White House uh, and at EPA. The rule has gone over to the Office of Management and Budget for uh, for consideration. The White House is reviewing it. Uh, the rule setting the 2020 through 2022 uh, standards is supposed to be out within the next couple of weeks. Um, a lot of times, what you see uh, in press reports, and I'm not uh, saying anything negative about that particular article, but you know when you when you get into crunch time, when you get into the time uh, that's where uh, these decisions are going to be made. The RFS levels are going to be set. There are people who have different positions uh, in the REN market, uh, and they will try to uh, get their talking points across uh, sometimes. And certainly, the refiners will uh, never let an opportunity to try to uh, lessen uh, the, uh, the volume requirements. Uh, you know, anytime before the final rule is uh, is, is set in stone. So uh, I wouldn't put too much credence behind that, but you know I'm sure there is a lot of activity happening behind the scenes. And Scott, I'm going to take it to a very basic level here. The refiners want to see the RFS go away, even if it's not costing them anything, as they're able to pass on these RINs values, because it's effectively displacing crude oil, and they they're concerned they're losing volume. Is that the is that how they view it? In a nutshell, that's exactly what's going on. They want to sell more of what they produce. They they don't want to sell uh, what uh, what somebody else produces. Now you know that uh, also gets into there's companies like Valero that you know Valero is one of the largest uh, one of the largest uh, ethanol producers in the country. But even so, they're quite negative on on the RFS. So it's you know it's just a question of um, you know refiners, and I think this is a very short sighted view. Um, you know they have the opportunity. Uh, to blend a product that is lower carbon, uh, that adds octane. It's actually a couple of bucks less than other sources of, of octane, uh, and that uh, and that um, and that saves uh, saves consumers money. And uh, they, you know, they they have uh, fought it tooth and nail uh, the whole time. And now that uh, you know we've 
we're still, uh, gasoline consumption numbers are still a little bit suppressed, even though we've mostly come out of the, uh, the effects of the pandemic. Uh, they're just fighting for their share of the gas tank. But I think, you know, as you look at uh, what needs to be done going forward uh, in terms of uh, low carbon solutions, uh, I, I think it's a little bit short-sighted of the industry to be, um, to be fighting in this way. Yeah, yeah, to be uh, to, to be knocking out a, a domestic renewable option in favor of crude oil, it does seem a little short-sighted in this political climate. Scott, in your recent paper, you talked about the 3-2-1 futures crack spread, a way of measuring sort of the broad gross return to these refiners, and it's strong. What did you find in terms of numbers? How good are they doing in 2022? Oh, they are doing quite well. <laughs> they, they are, uh, you know, they're, they're making very strong profits. Uh, their stock prices are, you know, have been screaming. Uh, if you look at the, it, there's, uh, there's what you referred to as, as the crack spread. And basically all that is, uh, is taking a look at the revenues they get from, uh, from refined products uh, minus the cost they have to pay for crude oil uh, and normalizing that to a, a per barrel basis, and the uh, the what's called the three two one crack spread, which takes into account gasoline and diesel, uh, that screamed around sixty dollars uh, a barrel uh, in re- in recent weeks. Which you know, when you consider gasoline is what one hundred and fifteen dollars a barrel, that's you know, it's a pretty nice profit margin. And <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at uh, gasoline only uh, versus crude oil, they're still making you know almost. Uh, uh, $50 uh, per barrel, so they are making some, you know, some really nice profit margins uh, right now. And uh, you know, we are in. That's reflective of a time that you know in which we have uh, quite tight uh, supplies for uh, for gasoline and for diesel. And you know, this is really a time when uh, when ethanol, in fact, that it's it displaces uh, 10% plus. Of the gasoline in the U.S., you know, having that extra supply, this is when uh, gasoline's ability to save money for consumers is really at its greatest. It is indeed. And folks, I will post Scott's recent article on our Twitter page. But Scott, if listeners want to keep up to date with the RFA, where can they go for more information? They can go to ethanolrfa.org or they can uh, follow us on Twitter. Fantastic, folks. Check that out. Great resources coming from the Renewable uh, Fuels Association. Our thanks to Scott Richmond, their chief economist, for joining us today. And we'll be talking to Arlen Suderman, chief economist for commodities at Stonex, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. One of the higher risk aspects of farming is crop protection application. With label changes, regulations, equipment maintenance, and drift management, it's a lot of risk. And a great way to manage it is to rely on your local FS and FS crop applicators. They constantly train to keep up with the latest label changes, regulations, and best practices. So your crop is protected and risks reduced. Contact your local FS to learn more about our custom application programs. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Cenex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel? That's always an option. The wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, it looks and feels like a bit of a risk-off day here throughout the entire commodity space and the stock market as the overnight rally and bounce back in Wall Street lost momentum. Stocks coming under pressure here this morning. The VIX trading just below 28 this morning. Crude oil prices 1% higher while the ags are lower. Wheat prices pulling back following recent sharp gains. Uh, maybe some profit taking there. Dragging corn prices lower as well while soybeans uh, trading mixed but starting to slip now under pressure 
as well, even though we did get a soybean sale announced to unknown destinations here this morning with a little bit for the old crop and the rest for the new crop marketing year, 229,200 metric tons in total. Now, the Wheat Quality Council Tour of Kansas yesterday, day one showed an average yield of 39.5 bushels per acre. The tour expecting to see much worse crops as it moves into day number two on their route from Colby, Kansas to Manhattan here today. Let's look at numbers. July corn down 16 to three quarters, 784. December new crop 16 at a quarter lower, 744 and a half. July beans down one, 1677. November down 11 at a quarter, 1514 at a quarter. July bean meal 210 a ton higher, 413.90. July bean oil down 194 points, 81.55. July Chicago wheat. 42 and a half lower, 1235. September down 41, 1237 to three quarters. July Kansas City winter wheat, 48 and three quarters lower, 1319. July spring wheat down 42 and a quarter, 1351 and a quarter. We see lower action in cattle and hogs. June live cattle down 97, 132.02. August down 115, 132.32. May feeder cattle down 60, 156.57. June hogs down 45, 104.70. July down 115, 106.60. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by HeartValve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA Today. You know, earlier this week, we were talking about the markets and in particular, the wheat market going absolutely crazy with the heat in India. Well, today it's pulling back a little bit. Joining us now is Arlen Suderman, the chief commodities economist with Stonex. Arlen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be here, Mike. Let's talk about this wheat market. Arlen, what happened in the overnight session that really made this wheat market fall apart? Oh, this market's really overbought. And if you look at the Chicago July contract, it got up to uh, really the old high, the old contract high levels that were set back in March. It spiked up there. And uh, that got some traders a little bit nervous because exports out of the United States are really pretty poor right now. And so decided to pull back and take some profits until we can get a better handle on the size of this crop. They saw the Wheat Quality Council Tour results from yesterday showing 39 point, uh, was I think 0.2 bushels per acre. Uh, that was down about 20 bushels from the same routes last year. Uh, but maybe a little bit better than what some in the trade expected. That tour group is going to see its worst wheat today and before they turn back east and get into some better wheat once again. So we might uncover some more strength as we go through the day today. Uh, I, I think we need to keep in mind where we're at here. We're trading at 12 to $13 price levels. And at that level, you're going to get big price swings. You're going to have a lot of nervousness of the trade. But the bottom line is, is things are still tight in the world. We still have fears of food shortages uh, in various portions of the world. We still have a significant threat to the hard red winter wheat crop, which is our biggest class of wheat production in the United States. We still have a risk of not getting our spring wheat acres planted, at least on time, let alone get all the acres planted that we need. 
And that reaches up into Manitoba as well. So there are significant concerns underneath this market. It's just that we're ready at very lofty levels. We are indeed, Arlen. And I'm curious about that spring wheat. We're seeing 40 to 50 cent sell-offs across that market today. And as you mentioned, there are continuing concerns about being able to get the acreage planted. This sell-off is, is really kind of surprising to me in the spring wheat market. Is this a buying opportunity or, or a pricing opportunity for folks who need to secure some, uh, some end user needs? Well, that's an excellent question because generally end users are short bought. They don't have a lot of coverage on right now. They're waiting to see what the new crop is like. And so generally we're anticipating they're going to be chasing the breaks in this market. Maybe not aggressively chasing the rallies, but uh, buying the breaks. And so we anticipate that there's going to be some good buying on this break. Obviously, no one's going to uh, a few buyers are going to buy while it's on its way down with a lot of momentum, but once they see some hesitancy in that selling, uh, they're going to be jumping in to buy is the expectation at this point. On the corn side, Arlen, we're seeing declines today in the corn market. Is this just spillover weakness from the sell-off in wheat, or is there a broader picture happening in corn? Well, let's keep in mind that we're seeing a lot of liquidation. It's generally a risk-off environment on Wall Street in general. So we've got an, uh, a VIX today that's starting to bounce a little bit. It's still below 30, but it's still elevated near 28. And, and we've got some nervousness on Wall Street overall after Fed Chair Jerome Powell made some more hawkish statements yesterday trying to reassure the markets that the Fed really does know what it's doing and does is working hard to control inflation. And, and he raised those fears again that they may get overly aggressive in, in trying to tame inflation. Uh, and so we're seeing broad-based sell-off, and I think we're seeing a, a move to the, in the money to the sideline and, that's, uh, and to the safe havens, I should say, because we're seeing a stronger dollar. And, uh, so, and the yields on the 10-year treasuries are also pulling back from earlier session highs as well. So I think that broader picture has changed the filter through which these funds are looking at these supply and demand fundamentals. Keep in mind that most of these fund managers don't look, know what a corn plant looks like, what a wheat plant looks like. Um, they're following chart signals and what they understand of the fundamentals, and they have computers that are reading these signals. And so when we're at these lofty levels, we're going to get these big swings. We've got to keep our focus on what is the longer-term trend. And you look at the longer-term trend, we're still very near um, contract highs or record highs in some cases. We are indeed, Arlen. But one of those long-term trends, you mentioned it right there, is the strength of this U.S. dollar. As we continue to watch Fed Chair Jerome Powell hike rates and, by all indications, take inflation seriously, do you foresee the value of that U.S. dollar continuing to climb, and is that going to present some headwinds? That does create some headwinds, particularly when we get the VIX, which is Wall Street's fear index, and the dollar both strong, both going up on the, at the same day. The dollar recently put in new 19-year highs, so we're really pushing those levels that we hadn't seen since the early 2000s. That makes us less competitive. That impacts, negatively impacts, I should say, wheat more than it does corn and soybeans. It also negatively impacts the meat products as well. Whenever we're in a situation where we have multiple competitors with cheaper currencies, that's a problem. And the other thing to keep in mind is the euro. The euro and the dollar tend to go in opposite directions in most cases. So if the euro is facing challenges, which it is, and a lot of those challenges are tied to the Ukrainian war right now, they're more directly impacted by it, their economy is. And so that's creating problems for the euro overall and helping push the dollar higher as well, in addition to our monetary policy here in the States. Arlen, let's talk about that corn crop we've got coming out of South America. I know at StoneX, you guys do lots of research. And so what's happening on the ground down there as we're getting close to harvest, as, as shipping is getting ready to get started, where do you stand on that second crop safrina corn down there in Brazil? Well, right now, this, our total corn production estimates right around 116 million metric tons, with the safrina crop is the bulk of that, is about 75% of that. And we take our survey of our customers once a month. It's keep in mind that the dryness that hit the northern half of Brazil's safrina corn belt 
occurred during the early grain fill period of time. So the plant was established, it looked good, generally looks good. Think of it as dryness hitting during the month of August in the Midwest. So you've got a good stand, you've got a good looking corn crop. Um, generally cool temperature, so it helps it withstand the dryness. So where you tend to see it is in smaller kernels, smaller kernel size. So if the kernel size is 5 to 10% smaller, that's hard to see with the naked eye when you break that ear. It shows up with the combine. And uh, the first of the corn that will be harvested late this month was planted in January. It should have good yields. So what's going to be most effective is uh, affected is the corn that's harvested in late June into July. And so we really won't have a good reading on the impact of that dryness until we get to late June and July. So while I anticipate a little bit of a reduction again in, the, in our June 1st production survey, I expect a more significant reduction in our July 1st survey when they get the actual harvest results. I don't expect a crop failure by any means, but I do expect that we'll see those yields on that safrina crop pulled back 5 to 10% because of that smaller seed size because of dryness during the grain fill phase of development. That makes sense. Arlen, turning our focus over to the soybean market, watching the trade today, we're seeing a lot more support in the front month contracts than we are in the new crop contracts. Arlen, is demand coming back to the U.S. for these summer months? It is. And as we look at China, you know, I'll go back up even further. This last week's weekly uh, export uh, sales report and export shipments, we're seeing a lot more business to non-China business. And on Monday when we got last week's export shipment numbers, we sold, I think we moved, if I remember right correctly, 28 million bushels during the week reported by USDA, which ended last Thursday. That is seasonally very strong, about twice what we'd normally do for this time of year. But it wasn't China. Only three or four million bushels went to China. It was non-China customers. But China is very short bought for the July-August period. They need to do a lot of buying for that July-August period. And as we talk to our boots on the ground in China, our employees there who are talking to our customers there in the crushing industry, they agree with me that USDA is being too conservative on Chinese demand. Yes, demand has softened because of poor feeding margins, but it's probably a bit better anywhere from 1 to 3 million metric tons for the current marketing year, stronger than USDA is currently indicating. And a lot of that business is expected to come from the United States in the July and August time frame, increasing our demand, increasing exports, while further cutting ending stocks for the old crop. All right, a little more bullish sentiment right there. Arlen, you touched on the, the dismal-looking feeding margins in China. Do you expect to see that Chinese hog herd start to decline again, or is the government going to backstop it and keep those hogs eating? Well, the government's doing what it can to stabilize things, and we are seeing signs of improvement. We've been seeing feeding margins improve. They're, they're not positive. They're not strong, um, but they're less negative and getting more near neutral. So we are seeing some stabilization uh, there already because of the smaller breeding herd, because of the reduction, and we are starting to see some opening up in China uh, following the lockdowns in Shanghai and Beijing and other areas, some signs of opening up, and that should increase demand going forward as well. So we do are cautiously optimistic. Cautious optimism as we head into the summer. Probably good news to a lot of folks out there looking at these input costs. Arlen Suderman, commodities economist with StoneX, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us here on AOA. When we return, we're going to check in with Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council, about the celebration they're having as potatoes travel farther into Mexico. Stay with us on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> A heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse prediabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> Do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Your diesels are your engines of prosperity, so they deserve the best treatment. And with FS Fuel and Lubricant, you'll give them the gold standard. Diesel X Gold High Performance Fuel plus Suprex Gold ESP Engine Oil. Formulated to work together, they'll keep your diesels running longer and stronger, from farming to construction to trucking. Visit FSGoldStandard.com or talk with your local FS Energy Specialist. FS, bringing you what's next. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, a lot of us see potatoes as the workhorse of our ration, right? They they work in, we eat them as fries, we roast them. I baked some potatoes last night, coated them with brisket for dinner. It was fantastic. But we don't often see potatoes in the headlines. However, on May 11th, 2022, there was huge news in the potato industry, drew some headlines, probably deserve to grab a lot more. Joining me today to talk about it is Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council. And Cam, what were you celebrating on May 11th? Well, I'll tell you, Mike, that that May 11th was, it it, it took 25 years to get here, but that was a terrific first step. And uh, yeah, we have, there was a lot of happy faces across our industry. I think it uh, uh, certainly down in Mexico at USDA and uh, up on Capitol Hill, everybody, it was kind of a team effort to get us to this place. So uh, it was really, really great news. And and the place we got is we've got potatoes going all the way into Mexico. Cam, as you mentioned, this was 25 years in the making. Prior to May 11th, what were the restrictions on potatoes being shipped into Mexico from the U.S.? Yeah, so uh, we're we're talking about fresh potatoes. So this would be both uh, potatoes that you would see at retail and in restaurants, what we call table stock, and then uh, also potatoes that would go to be turned into uh, potato chips, potatoes. fresh potatoes for processing, they were restricted to a very narrow band, only 26 kilometers south of the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, That was something that had been put in place uh, nearly two decades ago. It was a way for uh, the, the Mexican government to uh, to respond to huge political pressure from their domestic industry and say that they had opened their market, but really keep us very limited, keep us uh, from accessing the vast, vast majority of customers down down in Mexico. So this this new step, which last week we took a first step and we've got to build the market out, this battle isn't over. Um, but this new step, as you say, allows us uh, to serve customers a- anywhere in Mexico um, with high quality U.S. potatoes. Cam, let's talk about that Mexican market longer term. You mentioned this is the first step. There's some build out. There's some some demand growth that has to happen. But as you look long term, what can this mean for the American potato industry? If if uh, this is an enduring market for us, Mike, and and you know we're our competition hasn't gone away down there, so we are going to have still a battle on our hands to make sure that uh, now now that we've cracked the door open, uh, we need to be able to stay in their market. But if we are successful in that, and if you know we're going to need USDA to stand shoulder to shoulder with us and and uh, all of our uh, all of our allies in the U.S. government. Uh, we're looking at about a $200 million a year market uh, once we build that out over about five years. So it would be a massive game change for uh, for global potato exports, a 10 to 15% increase just with that one country. And Cam, you mentioned this needs to be a unified front as these conversations continue happening. And to that end, USDA made an announcement last week. They nominated Alexis Taylor from Oregon Department of Idaho or Agriculture, rather, as the potential undersecretary for trade at the USDA. What, what's your take coming from Oregon? Have you had engagements with Alexis before? Yeah, Alexis, uh, she's she's terrific. I actually met Alexis. Gosh, it was uh, it was well over a decade ago. She was working for a congressman from Iowa, um, uh, Leonard Boswell, and then she worked on the Hill also for uh, Max Baucus from Montana. Uh, she's uh, a, a very experienced hand in agricultural trade matters. Uh, she has been running, as you said, the uh, the Oregon Department of Agriculture for several years, and I, I think uh, when that uh, announcement was made uh, that uh, a lot of folks who have been who have been pounding the table for an undersecretary uh, for trade down at USDA uh, were were very relieved, and I, I think she's getting accolades kind of across the the uh, agriculture industry. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that confirmation move forward. It'll be nice to have uh, have somebody in that role to help present American ag's uh, duties around the world. Cam, now that this Mexico deal, the door is cracked open, you're going to have a lot of work maintaining it. But as you look around the rest of the world, what are some other opportunities for U.S. potatoes? Well, our our. Mexico is huge for us. 
coming uh, immediately behind Mexico, another major market. If we can get fresh potatoes uh, fully into Japan, uh, USDA has prioritized that in their negotiations with Japan. Huge opportunities there. Um, that's uh, that 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 market again could be on a par with Mexico. So you're talking about another 10 to 15 percent increase in uh, in U.S. fresh potato uh, exports if we can if we can get access to Japan and then build that market out. Again, uh, a very politically connected domestic industry in Japan. It's not going to be easy, but uh, you know I think we're going to follow a similar game plan that we did in Mexico uh, and. Hopefully, we're going to see similar results. It'll take a while, but but we're going to work that pretty hard. Uh, we're also uh, China is uh, uh, huge opportunities there. Obviously, massive challenges for all of U.S. agriculture, and we're really looking uh, around the Pacific Rim at uh, at new markets. That uh, some of those opportunities have to be coupled with a really sound U.S. trade policy. I think Alexis is going to help us with that, um, but it's really got to be kind of a bipartisan and focused effort to realize that the U.S., if we don't stay in this game, we're going to backslide and it's going to hurt the potato industry. It's going to hurt all of U.S. agriculture going forward. It could indeed. We've got to have those viewpoints front and center. Cam, for listeners who want to keep up to date with what's happening at the National Potato Council, where can they go to keep up with you? Uh, so we have a, a great, uh, a great podcast, Mike. Uh, Ion Potatoes podcast. You can get that on on all of the uh, all the podcast providers. Uh, you can go, go to our website, nationalpotatocouncil.org, uh, and uh, we're we're always available here in Washington D.C. Love love to talk to our to all the constituent groups and and people who love potatoes just like you, Mike. <laughs> There's a lot of us out there. Keep raising quality spuds for me to grill up, bake up, and fry up. Cam Quarles, head of the National Potato Council, thanks for joining us. And folks, before we go, just a quick reminder, if you are driving a commercial vehicle yesterday, today, and tomorrow, International Road Check, they're taking a close lie at a wheel end component. So make sure your rig is safe when you get on the road, because we hope to see you tomorrow right here for more AOA. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.